Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Welcome back. This is Andrew Brill with Light Bears. We have taken the podcast mobile today, guys. Uh, we are going to be interviewing Stephen Oliver, who's on our staff in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And so we met up uh, about halfway in between Fayetteville and Stillwater. We're in uh, we're in Tulsa, in an interior room in an office complex in Tulsa. Uh, so we've gone mobile, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk through this with Stephen. Stephen, good to have you here. Good to be here, man. Thanks. So, yeah. Uh, Stephen, I, you know, I told you I was going to do this. Just um, would love for you to just kind of give a little bit of background about yourself, your family, kind of um, let us get to know you just a little bit. And then we'll dive into to Matthew, which is our, our, our book we're going to talk about today. But um, just give us a little background on yourself first, your role with Light Bearers, all that. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I'm from Stillwater. Well, I'm from Northeast Oklahoma. I've lived in Stillwater for a good chunk of my life now, actually almost over half my life. And, um, and how I got connected with Light Bears, I was at Sunnybrook, or my church, Sunnybrook. And uh, I walk in, I get handed a pamphlet, and uh, it goes in my Bible with my bulletin. Usually, you know, never to be looked at again, right? We know how we do with the bulletin. So, um, and I don't know what it was, what it was that day uh, on a Sunday, but I happened to pull the bulletin out. I joked that I was really bored with my pastor's sermon, uh, <laughs> which I don't, I don't know if Jim Johnson would ever listen to this, but uh, I was bored with you that day, Jim. Don't follow that, kids. <laughs> right, right. I, I wasn't doodling on my bulletin, <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, I was looking at how I can serve the Lord in future yeah. <laughs> events. Um, but so I pull it out, I, I pull out the little pamphlet, and, and I read that there's this organization who wants to create um, discipleship opportunity within real estate. And so um, a little bit about me, I graduated from Oklahoma State University, uh, jumped from major to major for many years, finally just landed on business, um, and then found my niche in real estate when it came to business. And so, um, and the idea that Light Bearers had to to promote discipleship and, and fund missions is really an idea I had uh, on my own, I say on my own, actually, I feel like the Lord gave me that idea um, or that vision. And so when my vision collided with Lightbearer's vision, it was just kind of an eye opener. I, I still today call it the loudest God has ever spoken to me without audibly speaking. And so, um, uh, so I just, after church, I went and talked to... And, and let me just say, for the record, we've had this conversation before. There was a little bit of, they stole my idea. Yeah, yeah. So that was the, that's, that's, the, that's the actual tagline or the, or the running joke was I nudged my wife in the service, right? And I try not to interrupt my wife when she's worshiping and, uh, and listening to Forever. You don't really like to interrupt your wife. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, but I literally nudge her and I show her the pamphlet, give her like three seconds to like just scan it. And I say, um, I say hey, look, this is my, they stole my idea. Like this was my idea. Like I've got to talk to him, you know, and I'm, and, uh, and I'm really just sitting in my pew, just waiting for the, um, service to be over so I can go learn more about what this light bears thing is. So, um, so started off as a mentor. So a lot of our listeners know we, um, light bears, we have one-on-one mentorships where we partner with the local church to disciple our students. And so I started off, um, discipling a young man and, uh, did that for a couple years and then just, um, Couple doors opened and closed in my life with my career, and uh, and and a door opened to Light Bearers to help launch the Stillwater apartment complex, which is actually the first development uh, Light Bearers has done, um, where they built it from the ground up. So, 
So I've been a part of the Stillwater team from the beginning, um, started off helping with the real estate, helping out with some ministry stuff. Um, as of August of this year, I'm the campus director of our ministry. Um, and I still, um, uh, find joy in, in managing the apartments and being a landlord and, um, just ministering to students, um, through apartment living. So, cool. uh, you mentioned your wife, wife, kids, Give me the age of your kids, kind of what that season of life's like for you Sure. Uh, my wife, Melissa, uh, we've been married nine and a half years. It'll be 10 years in July. And uh, two boys, Maddox, who just turned four, and then Milo, who is uh, one and a half, a little over one and a half. Are you so. committed to all M names? Um, I am not. My wife seems to be. Uh, so my wife, Melissa, Maddox, Milo, you, you get the trend by now. Um, we do have a girl's name picked out if we were to have any more. Um, and it is also an M name. So, uh, my wife is very committed. I have pushed for different names and she has not been real thrilled about any of those names. So, uh, we seem to land on an M name. So what will happen is I will find an M name that I actually like. And because it's an M name, it's automatically won her over. Yeah. And so, and then I just have to advocate for why this is a, why this name means something. So. Well, speaking of M names, good transition here. We're talking about Matthew today. <laughs> That's a very I to- nice segue, I totally man. didn't plan that. Um, we are talking about Matthew. Uh, you taught on Matthew uh, for the Light Bearers, Stillwater students, and did it in a little different setting there this time uh, where it was in one of our apartments and so taught some, had some some discussion and conversation. But, um, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about uh, with Matthew a little bit is at Light Bearers, we have historically taught Mark first. That podcast already came out. Um, Incorrectly, too. So. <laughs> Keep going. That, that's, that's what we want to get into. And, and uh, the reason we've taught it first historically is that a lot of scholars say Mark was written first, even though it's not the first one in the New Testament that it was written first. Sure. You're one of those, along with lots of others, who say, no, Matthew was actually written first. Let's get into this a little bit. To be I clear, think, I'm one of the other scholars. Yeah, you're one of the other. You think Matthew was written first? I think Mark was written first. Let's 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 get it on. All right, give me your let's case for Matthew. This. Okay. Um, see, I feel like you proposed the question. You should have to give your defense first. Well, let me check the notes here. No, the bylaws. <laughs> the bylaws allow me to have you okay. talk first. All right. So here's my problem. Well, let me lay out the defense for Mark. Right. Um, because I think I have to address that before I can oppose it, right? Yeah. Before I can provide my rebuttal. So Mark, a lot of modern scholars, especially within the last couple centuries, have determined Mark is the is the first gospel written, written due mostly to um, two factors. One, it's length. It's the shortest gospel, right? So why would someone write a gospel after the fact that's shorter than the other ones, right? So... Uh, and then the second, it's a great point. The second statistical fact is that ninety percent—it's actually closer to ninety-one percent—of Mark's text is also found in Matthew, right? So, I mean, logic logic will lead us to a conclusion that says Matthew must have looked at the book of Mark and said, "Wow, this is all really good." Uh, Mark wasn't really there hanging out with Jesus, but I was, and I can expound on these stories and I can provide more details. And while I'm at it. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna provide some more information as well that Mark has no clue about or, or wrote nothing about. So that is kind of the um, uh, that's a very non scholarly yep. you know uh, um, assertion. But yeah. so so but my issue is it it goes completely against what the early church fathers believed. Um, the early church fathers almost unanimously, in fact, it might be unanimously. I can't find an early early church father. 
Um, anyone? Maybe Mark. What? Does he count as a church father, Mark? Well, he's not claiming his book came first. <laughs> what I'm saying, ahead. I can't find an early church father who anywhere in history who says uh, Mark came first. Uh, in fact, there, I mean, there are those who said, no, actually, Matthew came first. And so I think it was Papias, right? Early church father um, lived somewhere towards the end of midway through the first century into midway through the second century. And it's believed and written and recorded by church historians that he was an apostle of John, okay? Um, and that he was a companion of Polycarp. So we have someone um, who was um, very closely tied to people who walked and talked with Jesus, okay? So not quite firsthand account, but the closest thing we can get to that. Um, and this guy said, Matthew was originally wrote, written in Hebrew, okay? And we can we can talk about why we think it's a Hebrew audience, but um, and I, clearly, clearly it is a Hebrew audience. Um, but he originally wrote it in Hebrew, or some people say Aramaic. But, um, uh, uh, but Papias said so. By this assertion, it's clear that Papias believes Matthew was wrote really early on. Um, also, we don't have evidence. Well, because we have a Jewish audience, if. Uh, if it was written after 70 AD, surely it would have mentioned the destruction of the temple, right? But there's no mention of that. Now, it is mentioned Jesus talking about how the temple will be destroyed. Uh, so we know it's more than likely, and I believe, I mean, almost fully conclusively, that it was written before 70 AD. Um, and so, uh, and then we have other church fathers who, uh, I think it's uh, Clement of Alexander, uh, Irenaeus, um, Eusebius, who is a church, early church historian, he quotes these guys as saying that, um, that Matthew was the first gospel. Um, and then I, I believe it's Clement of Alexander who says not only was Matthew the first, um, gospel, but that Mark actually came even after Luke. He says that Mark came after the gospels that have genealogies at the front. So I have a very hard time looking at history and saying, no, the guys closest to the situation got it wrong, right? Right. Um, Augustine, um, his, he was the first to come up with a, uh, a gospel priority theory, and his theory was that uh, Matthew came first, Mark second, Luke, and then John. And so now that does, you know, that, that conflicts a little bit with um, Clement of Alexander. So, I mean, it's not, it's not flawless, right. but... But church history seems to be pointing at Matthew, right. and the early church held Matthew in very high esteem. So I think where we get it wrong is we look at the Greek version of Matthew, which is all we have. We don't, if there's a Hebrew version, we really, we don't have it, right? Although early church father Jerome, he actually wrote, no, we have it. It's actually written here. You can go look at it yourself, uh, but we don't have it today. So, so I believe it was written in Hebrew originally. Um, and then I believe uh, written to a Hebrew audience, and, uh, and it just came first. Now, well, actually, let me give you a chance to rebut on that. I, I'd like to know. I think, I think that's great. I mean, I think you've you've laid it out really well. Of there's the in a sense there's the logical argument for Mark, and the there's the more historical church history art argument for Matthew. You know, at the end of the day, I think you and I would both agree we we aren't going to know conclusively, and it's it, it doesn't. In a sense, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's I'm, interesting. I'm trying to tell you I know conclusively. Okay, here's here's I, the problem. Like, so here's a here's a major problem when we say that, that was early fun church. giving my share my my opinion. You're gonna have to be quicker than that, man. Um, here's my problem with saying the early church fathers 
could have gotten it wrong. These are the same people who actually said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels who can be trusted as an authoritative source, right? right? So Mark was not an apostle of Jesus, right? He was a companion of Peter, wrote a lot of what Peter told him to write. You could almost call it the apostle of Peter, right? right. But it was written by Mark. Um, and so to give the book of Mark credibility and, and validity, um, we take the early church fathers' opinions of those Gospels. and so. For me, I just can't pick and choose what we yeah. want to believe from the early church fathers when it comes to the historicity of Scripture. So, um, so. okay, we're gonna agree to disagree <laughs> on this one in friend in friendship, and we're gonna move on. <laughs> um, let's talk about Matthew itself. One of the things you said is you said it's written to a Hebrew audience. Talk talk briefly about the audience, um, how you know it's Hebrew. Um, what in the book itself shows you that, and then just the structure of Matthew itself. What do you what do you see about the audience and the structure of the book itself? And then we'll dive in to a couple of passages. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, a couple of things compared to the other Gospels, uh, the Gentiles don't show up as much in the book of Matthew. Um, now they're in there. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, Gentiles Matthew, meaning plain and simple, not Jews. Right, right. Um, they're in there, and Matthew is by no means writing a gospel that says they're excluded. From, and actually, his gospel points to that they are. He, he actually quotes Old Testament scripture that talks about uh, the Gentiles and their inclusion. So, so Matthew is not saying um, Jews are the only ones that are important, therefore I'm writing this letter to the Jews. He is saying, I'm a Jew. I'm an educated Jew. I know uh, Jewish history. I know the law. I know the scriptures. Uh, and I've walked with Jesus. I've seen him fulfill those scriptures. Right, and so I think it's somewhere around forty times that he specifically states in his text, uh, and this is how the Old Testament was fulfilled. He uses the words, "This is how it's fulfilled," or "It was written," and so, and then Jesus did this. Right? Yeah, I'm thinking of Matthew one, "Out of Egypt I'll call my son." I mean, he's quoting Hosea there, right? And he uses it to say Jesus is coming. I mean, he went to Egypt with Joseph and Mary, and now he's coming back. Right, right. Well, and that's another great point too. We to our Jewish audience, he's also he has given Jesus some type of reflection of Moses to, right? So Mark doesn't record the birth story, but Jesus does, and he or Matthew does, and he mentions um, about how Jesus was basically a survivor of child genocide, right? Which we know that about Moses as well. Uh, we know that uh, Moses um, was fled, um, not on his own right as a baby, but was fled to Egypt, right? Jesus flees to Egypt for um, safety from King Herod. Um, we have, um, there's some more, a little bit of a stretch with some of the imagery, but you have Moses walking through the Red Sea, and you have early on the baptism of Jesus and kind of this idea of water and uh, coming up through the water. Um, you've got uh, Moses wandering in the desert for 40 years, and that just 40 days is how long Jesus is in the wilderness as well, uh, being tempted. Immediately so, after passing through the water. Right, right, about, yeah. right. Immediately after baptism, passing yeah. through the waters, now Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. So you have this like idea that Jesus is kind of like Moses, which is a big deal to a Jewish audience. To a Gentile audience, eh, I mean, Moses, he's a historical guy. He saved some people from Egypt, but... To, to a, a good Jew, Moses is, he is held in very, very high regard. I would argue um, Jews would hold Moses, uh, Abraham, and David kind of on this tier one of the greatest Hebrew Israelites of all time, right? And then we see that in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Matthew starts his gospel with the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. So Matthew, being a good Jew and knowing his Jewish history, says, okay, right off the bat, I'm going to point out to you that he's the son of Abraham. He's pointing back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, saying he fulfills that. Uh, And then 2 Samuel 7, he fulfills the Davidic covenant as well, right? So David, um, the greatest king in our history, um, he is the son of David. He is the prophesied Messiah that will come. And so, so much of Matthew's gospel focuses on these two ideas of who Jesus is. He's, he's, not, only, he's not only like Moses, he's really the new, better version of Moses. Uh, Moses came down from a mountain and delivered the law, like he delivered the Mosaic Covenant, God's word spoken to Moses to his people on how to live. Uh, and we see after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, after he's healed people and built a following, Jesus goes up to a mountain as well and gives our Sermon on the Mount. So we see this better version of Moses, um, but we also see it within the context of genealogy and prophecy that he is the fulfillment of the Messiah through through Abraham's covenant and then eventually through David's lineage. And even the Sermon on the Mount, when you look at what Jesus says, it is things like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. I mean, the, the, the structure of how that's set up, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in, her heart, in his heart. You know, and so it's this idea of Moses told you this, but I'm telling you the heart behind it. I mean, Jesus is making these claims of, I can tell you better than Moses could. I can tell you the truth of, of God's heart. Not that Mo- anything was faulty with what Moses said, and yet there's, there's a depth here that Jesus is going to Jesus is gonna provide. Well, he, and he's not even making claims that, just I'm better than Moses. He's actually saying, no, I have authority over the law. Yeah. And only one person, one being, one, one God has authority over the law. So Jesus is making some really powerful statements right at the beginning of his ministry. He's like, not only am I better than Moses, I'm actually the guy who sent Moses. And you've heard it written in the law, but I tell you this because I have authority over the law, and I'm the, I'm the interpreter and the writer of the law. And that's actually what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that people were amazed at his authority. There's this... Yeah, that word shows up over and over again in Matthew. Right, right. So. Um, any any other thought? I mean, that so really, it sounds like what you're saying is uh, we can tell that Matthew is writing to a Hebrew Hebrew audience because the things that he is emphasizing are the things that Jews would care about. They understand Jesus best. Um, when they understand him through that lens, the lens of the Old Testament. And so Matthew's emphasizing that. Is that accurate? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that pretty accurate? No, yeah, I'd say that's right. So, And and the reason, going back to just the priority question, Mark doesn't mention the Sermon on the Mount, right? And and it's not that the teachings Jesus gave wasn't valuable. Um, It was, uh, but Jesus is referencing a lot of law there and then putting his stamp of authority interpretation on it, right? Well, to a Gentile audience, that law doesn't hold a lot of weight for them. And so, um, but for Matthew's audience, it does. And so it's very clear that it's in there. So. Well, and all this is good, you know, as we have, you know, we spent a long time in the old Testament as we now transition to the new Testament in these first couple of weeks of the spring, really, there's this, you can't understand Jesus rightly without looking backwards. And so we've spent a semester saying, Hey, it's not like there's God in the old Testament and then, he changes and, and becomes nice in the New Testament. I mean, he is one throughout. And that's kind of what Matthew is saying, is Matthew is saying, to understand Jesus, you have to understand what came before, the, yeah. the promises, the covenants, the you know, all of those, all those sorts of things. Right. So, and even even in the way 
Matthew titles, well, the title Matthew gives you. I think the most common thing other than Jesus that Matthew calls Jesus in his gospel is son of David. So he's just saying it over and over, son of David. You know, the son of David did this. He's reminding his audience, like, who Jesus is. Jesus, on the other hand, um, he's also reminding his audience who he is because Jesus' favorite title for himself is the son of man, right? Which doesn't mean he's a human. Like, he's referencing Daniel 7, that he is this this Messiah, this powerful being who sits on the right hand of God, who's been given all authority, who comes in on the clouds, right? Um, and so, like, Jesus is letting you know, like, I'm ushering in a kingdom, like, I'm someone with power and authority. Um, but the other theme of Matthew is that, like, just so you know, the, 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 the kingdom I'm ushering in, like, it's very upside down to what you were expecting, right? right? And I am this powerful being with all authority coming in on the clouds that sits at God's right hand. I am that person, but I'm going to look a lot different than you're expecting. Like I'm going to look like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Uh, and Matthew does a really good job of, I think, showing both sides of Christ. I think a lot of times we, when we don't read the Gospels for ourselves, when we think of the name Jesus, we think of like the sweet lamb of God. And we, we, we associate lamb with like a soft, fuzzy animal. Um, we, we picture Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. And, uh, and some of those things are, are very true. But when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, he's actually making a very, um, uh, a very bold claim um, that Jesus is this powerful authority who's going to come and he's going to, um, like, trees that don't bear fruit, he's going to throw on the fire. And he, is, he didn't come in peace, he came with a sword. And so Matthew does a really good job of balancing this picture of Daniel 7 with also this suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which I think is really... Um, not not necessarily just unique to his gospel, but he does it in a very Jewish way that that really just brings the Old Testament out. You know, kind of building on that, you know, put it in terms of, um, in a sense, who is Jesus in Matthew? And and obviously, we know, you know, it's the same the same person, the same Jesus in all four gospels, and yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, each of these four are going to emphasize some some slightly different things, perhaps. So. If you're going to, you know, kind of sum that up a little bit for Matthew, who is Jesus in Matthew? Jesus is, you know. We've touched on he's the fulfillment of yeah. the prophets, right? And so we know that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is uh, the man, son of man on the clouds in Daniel 7. We know, uh, we know who he is. So we know that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, and also in that too, Matthew kind of reveals this other aspect of Jesus that isn't so obvious in the Old Testament, like the idea of Emmanuel. Right, and that appears to be a prophecy in Isaiah that's speaking um, of an actual person at that time, and, and and really scholars think it is. But Matthew's saying like there's this other side of the coin, right? That that this prophecy in Isaiah is also pointing to Christ, um, and and he is the Emmanuel, like he is born of a virgin, and Emmanuel, which to our our listeners right now means God with us. And, and it's interesting how Matthew kind of bookends his gospel with this idea of God with us. Um, he says it in Matthew Matthew 1, he, just, he specifically calls out the prophecy and, and, and says Jesus is the Emmanuel, like he is God with us. And then he ends his gospel with the Great Commission, where he says, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Right? And the word authority is in there as well. All authority yes. has been given to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that you have the authority piece, and you also have this like, and just because I'm leaving, like, it doesn't mean I'm not with you. Like I'm yeah. still with you. These, this idea of Emmanuel, this idea of God with us, um, is present uh, because um, this idea of Jesus 
ushering in this new kingdom, right? And that's the other big theme, I think, of the Gospel of Matthew is this new kingdom and what this means. Jesus starts his ministry with repent the kingdom, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And so Jesus, Jesus is here, but he's not just here to set up an actual physical kingdom for the Israelites back in the promised land um, to reign eternally, you know, as a powerful people. No, he's here to set up a new kingdom um, that's going to flip everything upside down of what they thought and what they expected. You know, the idea of the first will be last and the last will be first, that Jesus didn't come to serve, but or to be served, but to serve. You know, Jesus has these new, strange ideas um, that um, that is here and it's with the new kingdom. Um, but really the essence of the kingdom is Jesus himself. Like he is here, he is God, he is God's glory. Uh, we see whenever... Uh, towards the end of the gospel, as Jesus is approaching uh, Jerusalem, right? He comes in and they're they're announcing him as the king and they're praising him and he enters Jerusalem. And one of the first things he does is he kind of attacks the temple, right? He's he's throwing over the tables. He's he's purifying what man has made corrupt. Like uh, in the temple, again, we're talking about a Jewish audience, a temple, the temple is where God's glory dwelt. It's a really big deal. So for anyone to come in there and act like he owns the place, um, he's speaking some really bold claims about himself, right? Um, uh, but he's saying, look, I can come in here and I can flip over these tables and I can, I can have my way with the temple because God's glory not only dwells within me, but I am the authority of God. And so this idea of God with us is, is just saturated throughout the gospel. And because God is with us, that means his kingdom is with us as well. His kingdom is at hand, right? Um, but it's not fully here either, right? right. It's right. kind of here, but it's not fully here yet. So there's this, Jesus is, is brought in some form of kingdom, and you can choose to be a part of this kingdom, um, or you can choose not to be, but the but it, it will, the kingdom will right. reign one right. day. Right. And, and then Jesus, who sits on his throne and has authority, will separate um, the goats from the lambs, right? He yeah. talks about Which is that. only in Matthew, Which not is, yeah. show up in the other Gospels. Right. You know, I mean, there's these... There's a series of parables in Matthew 13 where it's kind of this consistent, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so there's just, you know, kind of continual, it's like this, it's like that, it's, you know, it's a mustard seed that grows, it's like a, you know, a pearl hidden in a field. And consistently it is this something small, something growing, uh, and, you know, you could kind of, and something valuable. Maybe maybe those are the three I'm, I'm thinking this up on the fly, so I don't, you know, please don't hold me to that people. But, you know, the kingdom is small, it's grown or start small, it grows and it's valuable of infinite value. Um, and, and that's, there's a consistency there. And so to understand Jesus and Matthew is to understand him as king of a new kingdom. Right. So, yeah, um, you know, another thing that you point out that I think is, you know, you mentioned that passage at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me. Um, you know, therefore, go and make disciples, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, you know, this is what you're pointing out in Emmanuel, that that he has authority and he's with us. And that is kind of the great wonder, is that both of those things are true. I mean, imagine someone who, you know, a king that has authority, but doesn't draw near to his people. Well, that's dangerous, threatening, not comforting. I mean, at best, it's not comforting. At worst, it's really, really threatening. Okay? Or imagine the alternative, which is, someone who is with you but has no authority. Well, that's great and comforting, but they can't always affect change that you want. And so that God would do both of those things is really the wonder that um, that 
that we're getting at here. And so that concept of a manual that you draw out, it seems really big. Well, and also to the fact that that authority looks very different than if you or I were going to try to take over the world today, mm-hmm. right? So if we're going to take over the world, if we're going to try to assert our authority and build a kingdom here, it's probably going to require some violence, right? It's right. going to require us, you know, pushing until we get our way. Right. And uh, and Jesus actually comes healing people. He comes um, proclaiming, you know, like repentance, right? Um, to to turn and to forgive others, um, and then uh, and teaching in parables too. So it's like, really, is that is that what the Messiah is supposed? To, right. This Daniel seven image of the Son of Man is this what it's supposed yeah. to look like? It doesn't look like coming on the clouds, right? Yeah. Right? No, not at all. So. Yeah. That's um, good. Um, you mentioned earlier the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that's that's one that we always kind of push our students towards, and in some ways, you know, it's it's the definitive passage of Matthew in, in the sense of he spends three chapters on this sermon. Mark doesn't cover it. John doesn't cover it. Luke covers it in bits, but it's not drawn the same attention to. So it's and it has this these familiar phrases: "Blessed are the poor in spirit," "Blessed are the peacemakers," those sorts of things. So um, look at that for just a second. Tell us your thoughts on um, what's going on there. Why is that significant, Matthew? How are we to understand it? Any 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 thoughts you have there on those those chapters? Yeah, sure. So I think you know even before you get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter four. So Sermon on the Mount starts chapter five, right? But it, towards the end of four, when Jesus kind of the first real major proclamations of his ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what Jesus is saying is repent, um, which basically means to like, you need to change the way you're doing this. You need to change your mindset. It's, uh, I think it's the Greek word metanoia, right? Like, so repent, change, which Jesus is assuming like all of you people are getting it wrong, right? And there's a lot, there's a diverse group of people following Jesus around at this point. Like you're healing people, you're casting out demons, You've got a lot of people from a lot of different areas, right. aspects of life following you. And he's he's proclaiming it to everyone to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so then he, you know, he kind of takes his first real teaching position of here. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it out to you a little bit what that means, right? And so he goes through these beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed um are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like he's saying, he's saying that, look. You're blessed not so much on your actions and what you do, but you're blessed on the state of your heart, right? And so, and then you see the rest of chapter five, and then really actually chapter six and seven, he's expounding upon what he means by that. Like, it's it's not just adultery that's the problem. Like, okay, Pharisees, you know, religious people, yeah, you're not cheating on your spouse, but like, even if you lust in your heart, like, that's... Right. That's the bigger problem. Like you're missing that. You're not thirsting. You're not hungering for righteousness. Internal versus external righteousness. Right, yeah. right. And so Jesus, I mean, that's what he's getting. He's saying, hey, repent. And some of these people are following the law very, very well, which is why the Pharisees get really up in arms a lot of time with them. We think of the Pharisees as the the bad guys, the antagonists, like the really sketchy guys. No, these are people who are actually trying really hard, who I think have a a genuine fear of God, um, but it's limited to their actions and only their actions. Like the heart, the heart of the matter, right, is not, um, like it's, 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 it's messed up. And Jesus is saying, repent of that. And I'm going to show you like some very tangible ways to do that. Like here's, here's some, um, here's some general ideas on anxiety. Here's some general ideas on divorce and marriage and, and loving your enemies. Right. And so Jesus is laying all this out and he's saying like, look, it's not just your actions, like it's your heart. Um, but I also think, too, he's saying to a lot of people who probably have less of a heart problem but don't 
follow the law at all. Right. Like he's, that's why he's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? right? So he's not trying to say it's only about the heart, which is, I think, where our culture's at today. Right. We, look at, we look at our relationship with Jesus and we say things like, I really don't need the church. Me and God have a relationship. Or I don't need religion. I've got a relationship with Jesus. Um, and there, there's some truth in like that last sentence there, but, um, but Jesus is also saying, no, like obeying me, like even the great commission, how he ends Matthew, he's saying, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Right. And so this idea of like, no, actually obedience to Jesus is really central, right? but obedience only comes through transformation of your heart. Right. And that's, that's why this new kingdom so upside down. Yeah. Right. Before it was just, we just got to follow the law. Yeah. Right. Um, so Which, crazy piece about Jesus's authority there. He says, obey all that I commanded you. I mean, he's saying, obey me personally, which is, that's a dramatic claim. Right. But, you know, and, and I think one of the challenges is to read the Sermon on the Mount now and to say, okay, how are we supposed to take that? And I know lots of people have written and studied a lot on it. It, it seems to me, and you can comment on this, that it's kind of a couple things. One is it's kind of revealing our own failures and sin and need for a savior. I mean, it's holding up this incredibly high bar of, you know, I mean, we used the lust example earlier, but you know, there's also the don't hate anyone. And and when you, when you give, do it in secret. And when you pray, do it in secret. You know, I mean, there's all these, all these things that it's like, man, we can't ever live up to all of that stuff. And so it reveals the need of a savior that Jesus will then fulfill. It also seems to be painting a picture of what Jesus's kingdom and people will look like. And so there's kind of a foretaste of something to come where we won't hate our brother ever in our heart. And and like to hint at that, that is pretty, that's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, you agree with that? Any, any, anything you'd add to that? No, I mean, I, I think you, I mean, I think you said that really well. And that's where, um, I think that's where some when we look at, and I think actually the book of Mark does a really good job of this. Is at the end of Mark's gospel, you have this picture of a empty tomb, right? And one of the things I love about Mark, and, and a lot of scholars will look at Mark and say, "Well, Mark's actually he's he's leaving with you a decision to make here. The tomb is empty. Like, what do you believe? Like, what are, what are you going right. to do with this? Right? right? And, and Matthew's saying that too in a different way. He's saying, "Look, I'm going to show you all the reasons why Jesus is who he says he is. I'm going to show you that he is God in flesh, God incarnate. What are you going to do with that? Right? And so, um, yeah, we're going to respond by hopefully being obedient. Um, but in a weird way, it's like also Jesus is showing us that we can't be obedient, uh, but he is our king. So how do we submit to this king um, who we can't fully give everything to? Right. And that's and I think that's where this idea of the kingdom is at hand, like it's here. But it's not quite fully yet, too, right? Right. So, um, so let's let's live faithfully in the kingdom that's here, right? That's at hand in a sense that it's present, and let's look forward to the kingdom to come, where God uh, makes all things new, where He makes all things right. So we live in obedience now to live, I think, in perfect holiness later. That's good. That's a good charge to to uh, to conclude us with. Anything anything else you haven't touched on that you want to make sure you you point out from your study? Uh, I will say I have a there's there's a section of Matthew that might be my favorite section in all of Scripture. Okay, and I call it like a mic drop moment for Jesus. Okay, so for our leaders, I encourage you to go um, to tw- chapter twenty two, verses forty one through the end of the chapter. Right, and it's just a few verses. I mean, yep. I say to the end of the chapter, it's forty six is the end of the chapter. So like four or five verses. Um, what I love about this picture 
Um, Jesus, normally we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus to accuse him, to, to do some type of, um, you know, trap him in a, you know, in some type of issue where they can say, ha ha, you're not, you're not the son of God. See, mm-hmm. you messed this up. They're always coming to him with ideas and accusations, right? But Jesus comes to them in this passage and he's kind of just toying with them a little bit, I think. And just, you know, and I love it. You know, he's, yeah. he basically says, um, here, let me just read it real quick. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Right? So Jesus is saying like, okay, the Messiah, like right. we all agree there's going to be a Messiah coming. Like whose son is he? Right? Well, I mean, they know their old Testament and they say, well, the son of David, right? Yeah. That's what scripture says. Second Samuel seven, like the son of David will come. Right? So Jesus said, then how is it then that David who by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay, calls him Lord. And then he quotes Psalm 110, 1, mm-hmm. where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Right? And so Jesus asks this profound question to the yeah. Pharisees and says, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Right? And when we read that, this is one of those passages that when we're reading through a book of the Bible or the, or the Bible in 12 months, like we kind of just skim past it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's Old Testament stuff, not really relevant today. But this is an awesome section because Jesus is saying, hey, this guy, David, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, like Moses, David, Abraham, these guys are tier one people in Israel's history. Okay? Right. And David might even be the top guy because he's kind of who they're waiting and expecting to come back is like a better new David, um, the greatest king in their history. And so if David, in a patriarchal society where the father is considered way more revered, to be way more respected than the son, Mm -hmm. if David's son is his Lord, like, how do you reconcile that? And to a Jewish audience, they can't. Right. Like, you you say, okay, well, it's his son. Well, it's not really his Lord. Well, okay, remember, Jesus said he's speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. So now you're calling God's spirit wrong? No. Calling David wrong? No. Okay, then we have to accept the fact that David, who by the power of the Holy Spirit, acknowledges that the Messiah is his Lord, who is also his son, who sits at the right hand of God, and Jesus is like, boom, mic drop. Like, Just for you listeners, Stephen is actually holding his hand up, imagining and, and dropping, dropping a, a mic. mic. So, And I think that I think that, uh, that whole analogy with the mic drop is overused. We use it for everything. Right. I'm yeah. like, you know just made dinner, boom, mic drop, you know? Um, but no, this is like a real mic drop situation. Yeah. And uh, because this is what it says, the last verse, and no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And that's why it's a mic drop, because I've said all I needed to say, you don't even have anything else to come at me with, which favorite verses in the Bible. Yeah, that's good. To understand Matthew and and really to understand Jesus in Matthew is to understand him as that one with authority that has come from God from from centuries past. Uh, Stephen, thanks for walking through this with us. Thanks for doing the prep to teach. And uh, it's been fun. Glad to be here. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Lightbears.com.